0: When you're trying to verbalize it, it sounds like you inherently separate them, you're like concepts and craft coming together. It's idea and execution coming together, but it's all the stuff in the middle is what it actually is. There's not really a general term for it.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Mike Alderson. Mike is co-founder and chief creative officer at Man vs. Machine an industry-leading design and direction company that operates predominantly in and around the fields of moving image, whether that be design, brand identity, film, animation, or visual effects. The name represents their ethos of embracing the collision point between conceptual and technical. Man vs. Machine was co-founded in 2007 by Mike and Tim Swift in Shoreditch, England, when Mike was only 26 years old. 15 years later, with studios in London and Los Angeles, where he currently resides, Mike and the team at Man Vs. Machine continue to strive at the forefront of moving image design, with a stunning client list that includes brands like Google, Apple, Nike, Pepsi, and Fender Guitars, and an awards shelf that includes Con Gold Lions, Emmys, and the highly coveted D&AD Black Pencil. Mike's come-up involved a bit of trial and error. Including an attempt at a quote unquote proper job as a welder's apprentice and a stint as a pro BMX racer, like so many I've talked to, design wasn't really an option for him until he stumbled upon it and dove in headfirst. And when he did, he found his calling. Mike's story is an exciting tale, peppered with many of those when preparation meets opportunity, make your own luck moments, as well as some very honest talk about burnout, recovery, and what it means to build a truly sustainable creative practice. It's a talk that's both delicious and nutritious. Here's Mike.
0: I'm Mike Alderson. I live and work in Los Angeles, California. I'm Chief Creative Officer and co founder at Man vs. Machine, which has offices in London and Los Angeles. I do it because <laughs> I chose to. It's the path I chose.
1: So, uh, in order to learn all about you and this path you've chosen, uh, I really like to start at the very beginning. So, would you paint the picture of your childhood for me?
0: Yeah, so I'm from a town called St. Helens, which is in Merseyside, up in the northwest of England, just outside Liverpool. It's a great area. It's the kind of area that you're super proud to come from. There's There's a massive sense of pride there. You know, People from Liverpool itself, which where my parents are all from, they're extremely proud people. They were the greatest city in the world for five minutes at some point in history. And I think the the pride that came with that has stuck. And it kind of trickles down even into the generations coming out today. So it was a great place to grow up. It's a really very regular upbringing, industrial town, working class family. My dad worked in a cheese factory. My mum was a receptionist at a doctor's surgery. But I had a great time. Nothing fancy. Went to the schools nearest to my house. Hung out with the kids in my street.
1: Did you have brothers and sisters?
0: Yes, I've got one older sister. Not the fanciest of places, but because we lived on a housing estate that was built just before my parents moved in, the place was just full of kids. It was only new families. So you'd get home from school, take your uniform off, throw it on the floor and run outside and there'd be like 20, 30, 40 kids just out in the street, just all playing out. So it was great stuff. Just used to get up to all sorts because it was, you know, back in the early 80s. So security and safety was a little bit more relaxed back then. So we'd, mm-hmm. we'd kind of do whatever we felt like and go home when we were hungry.
1: So, what did that mean? Were you playing uh, sports in the street? Were you getting up to no good?
0: Yes, but anything from as innocent as playing jump rope to the other end of it, like shooting each other with pellet guns and stuff like that. The whole spectrum. We had a little rivalry with some other neighboring housing estates, so there'd be a little bit of argy Baji, between us, <laughs> us and them but you know it's this but looking back on it, it was it was such a brilliant place to grow up because that was your entire world and it's such a small small world that you lived in and my parents have never left they still live in the same house they moved into when they got married that house and they they're, they're still very happy there it's fantastic Thato Heath is the name of the, the little village in St. Helen's.
1: that sounds amazing I'm really happy to hear stories of you doing both the good stuff and the bad stuff Can you walk me through what the kinds of things you were fascinated by, or what kinds of things interested you? And as you're leading into your teenage years, like how you're expressing yourself, were you the rebellious sort or more of a dashing fashionista?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I, I wouldn't say I was rebellious in this sort of overtly naughty sense. I was a bit of a sneaky one, where I was the kind of cheeky kid in class, I guess, where. I knew I was being mischievous, but I didn't know where the line was. So I'd, I'd always try and stay just on the right side of it, but trying to impress my friends through being just naughty enough and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's not rebellious at all, but one of the distinct memories that I have, there's a photograph that I've still got, and it's me and my best friend, Billy. You know, we were best mates, lived a few houses down from each other. We'd walk back and forth to school every single day. We used to love riding our skateboards, Wearing our Liverpool football kits. It's just something that stuck with me ever since this idea that we used to get challenged by other kids saying, you know, you can't be into skateboarding or BMX and into football you've got to choose a lane. What are you attaching yourself to, that more sort of athletic sport world or the sort of, you know, the more underground, as it was back then, skateboard, BMX world? And it just always confused us. We just ignored them and carried on. But that was our favourite thing in the world. You know, we'd spend the whole summers just skateboarding around in our full football kits with sometimes shin pads on and everything. <laughs> <But> <laughs> we weren't rebellious, but we just had an idea of what we liked and what we wanted, and we, we went with it.
1: You weren't adhering to some of the social categories that... They were trying to foist upon you?
0: Not consciously. I mean, it it was all just us being idiots who couldn't be bothered changing our clothes.
1: But I mean, I think those kinds of social lines existed here in the States too. Like, there was a real identification with whatever sport you chose.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: I understand that you left school when you were at 16 to become a welder apprentice.
0: Yeah, in the UK, you can leave at 16 or go on to A-levels, where you kind of continue until you're 18. But yeah, I was, I was always more practical than academic. I applied for a mechanical engineering apprenticeship that was £45 a week, which seemed like a load of money then. I thought, I can save up and buy a car. And I got the place. So it's, you know, St. Helens is a huge glass manufacturing town. So there's, I think there's like five or six glass factories just in that small town. So it was at the biggest one, Pilkington Glass. I spent the first year, you learn to make your own tools. So that's how you learned the, the mechanical side of it. You, you were welding, you were doing electrical engineering to get a grounding in mechanical engineering. And then I went to work in the factory. And yeah, then you're actually on site learning on the job. That's when I learned exactly what I didn't want to do for the rest of my life, (laughs) basically. Uh,
1: Just as important as learning what you do want to do, I think, is learning what you
0: don't want to do. (laughs) I'd, I'd, I'd go as far as even more important because it gave me such an appreciation for where I've ended up. I don't mean that in a sort of emotional sense, just I I can still refer back to that and think I did not enjoy working shifts in a factory, being underneath a production line, trying to weld something, laid on your back, inhaling all sorts of stuff that you probably shouldn't be inhaling. I don't miss that. I know my dad, who worked in a factory all his life, was pretty keen for me to not go down that road as well if I could help it. That was a five-year apprenticeship that, that led to a really secure job. It was a, a good thing to be doing, but I walked away after two years, which which didn't impress my dad in the slightest, mostly because I did it with no real plan other than to ride my bike. I'd been r- racing mountain bikes during the time of probably since I was 15. I got good enough to race pro, so I, I decided to do that.
1: So your dad, understandably, even though he maybe didn't want for you a factory life, He did see you in a five-year apprenticeship program that would lead to a really great job, and you abandoned it after two years to, to do something that didn't really have any security or a real recipe for security.
0: Yeah, very unimpressed
1: have you two worked through that or do you still oh yeah yeah yeah
0: the thing with me and my dad is we're always more like we're such similar people such similar personalities what we've worked out in the uh, in the long run is that we're actually we're kind of more like brothers these days <laughs> than father and son I mean I've got massive respect for him but we're so similar we're virtually the same person just in a bit of a strange time delay he actually had big aspirations he was a, you know an excellent sort of drawer and artist and he never got to express any of that so I think he's happy I've ended up where I am because he was always frustrated that he could never go down a, a creative path himself.
1: I'm glad he can appreciate that you get to and that it's, it's hard won, that creative path. But I mean, I also have a lot of respect for the previous generations who just didn't have those opportunities.
0: Even my generation, you know, you went to see the career advisor in school when, before you departed, and, you know, you, I didn't even know that graphic designer was a job yeah it's it's a fact you know you go there and they're like oh you can be a policeman a fireman you can you know be an engineer never did anyone ever say because I used to draw sort of savagely as a kid because it, it rained a lot where I grew up so you'd have to come up with things to do when it was raining and, and I'd just lay on the living room floor and just draw and draw be drawing cars and houses and and generally kind of mechanical things I, I knew what an architect was so I figured oh that's what I want to be I, I think I mentioned that to the careers advisor and they were like don't be silly not in those words but that was definitely the vibe like whoa 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 whoa. put me in my place a little bit
1: but put you in what place is that really your place (laughs) yeah
0: Yeah, yeah. and it it wasn't I don't want that to come across like someone knocked me down but it was just like they were almost like yeah that's not really part of what we offer here so (laughs) maybe focus on the simpler stuff
1: Right. I've heard a similar story from a lot of people that I've talked to. And in culture, we have a lot of these touch points that end up dissuading people from pursuing the creative path. And not only that, but we have a lot of like lack of understanding of the career opportunities in design. So many people have told me that they stumbled on design or that they had never heard of it before. They didn't even know it was something you could do so anyway i have a personal chip on my shoulder about that (laughs) which is one of the reasons we're talking about it right now sorry that that guidance counselor didn't send you into architecture but i want to hear about the bike racing chapter of your life because that sounds pretty formative to me
0: that was always my kind of main hobby at bmx like skateboarding and leading to bmx which i got really into and then mountain biking got picked up like rode for a team proper when I was kind of 16, 17, 18 and then yeah sort of was at a level where I was doing international races so I thought I'd just take a year and see where it led. It was brilliant you kind of you know you didn't get a big salary or anything but you sort of lived for free almost kind of traveling on someone else's dime and uh, it was brilliant it was really fantastic and I I got good but I, I sort of pretty quickly realized that I wasn't willing to Commit what was required to take me to the the real kind of professional level and start making real money, which was like dedicating yourself to it completely, training like a, a madman. I was always a bit more of an instinctive rider and an instinctive person in in every situation than someone who's kind of methodical and planning. You know, making plans into the future. And I rode the wave essentially. And at the same time, that's when billy who i mentioned earlier his older brother paul he was actually doing a design course at one of the local colleges Uh, i think it was i think art foundation which is the thing you do after your levels before you go to university in the uk i'd go and hang out with billy in the evenings when i was around i'd see what paul was up to and it was just it just looked like the exact kind of things that i wanted to do it was like that you know that that's the stuff that comes naturally to me. The stuff I want to do. Just you know, being posed problems to solve through interesting ideas and pretty pictures. I, I kind of watched over his shoulder for a while, and then when I was coming to the end of that year of kind of full-time biking, I just asked him how do, how do I get into what you're doing? But I I had to play catch up a little bit. I'd, I hadn't lost too much time because I hadn't yeah I'd left school at 16 and then gone into this little sort of side story. I wanted to get kind of back onto track of where I. I think I'd always intended to be. So I had to do a little bit of cheating and I I may or may not have borrowed his portfolio to go to an interview at another college and uh, added one or two, changed a few details and added a few of my own bits. But I was quite opportunist back then. Arguably still am now. Um, (laughs) I, I did what needed that to be done. That sneaky to get... side
1: of you is still big. Yeah, I mean, just
0: like, you know, the rules are there for the guidelines, aren't they? But um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I went to the, a local kind of foundation degree course, applied for it. And yeah, this, what experience have you got? None, da, 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 da. But I had this portfolio that I had made myself at home. And I think they knew that I was kind of pulling their leg, but that I think it was just my sheer enthusiasm that allowed them to let me onto the course, and they, they, I guess they just thought, let's give him a go and see what he's got. And I just loved it. I was, as I said earlier, because I think there's, you know, there's half the people on that course are, are really into it and really there for the right reasons, and the other half are, are they didn't quite know where they were headed and, and that was where they'd fallen kind of thing because, you know, you were you were the best artist in your class. Da, 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 oh, I guess I'll do graphic design because they, they obviously knew about it. Maybe they were from the nice side of town um, where graphic design existed. I, I just remember and being almost like embarrassingly enthusiastic on that course, you know. You'd, you'd be getting <laughs> new briefs and I'd almost be like, woo! <laughs> and everybody, everybody else is just sat around like, oh my God, what's wrong with this? And, but I, I loved it.
1: It's so endearing though, and it also it makes everybody else like it raises the energy and, and Yeah. It, you know, it's great. I, I
0: absolutely loved it. And it was that thing where I'd gone and worked in a factory and done all that stuff and done shifts and done what their dads had done and and then I'd had this little sort of hiatus with the bikes and I felt like right, let's let's get this thing on track and, and maybe show my parents and show myself what I've got in this world. So yeah, I did uh two years in Liverpool at the local college and then I again slightly opportunistically transferred myself into the second year of a proper degree course rather than starting the first year I decided myself that I was ready for the second year so insisted (laughs) and I went down to London I I went and taught a few colleges and there's St Martin's LCP but the one I really liked was called Ravensbourne which is down Mm -hmm. in, in southeast London just was just outside still is just outside town it was even further outside town when I was there but it just felt like they were preparing you for the world of work more than just teaching conceptual thinking.
1: I've heard that. It's very process-oriented. Yeah, it's, got, it's a huge
0: broadcast college. It's a classic design school with, yeah, graphic design, moving image, a huge fashion course, interior architecture, but it's got a, half of the school is broadcast, so you've got all this like these very practical people milling around as well, and they do... They do kind of collaborations between the students on the different programmes, so it's, it was really good. It, was, it just resonated with me, and the fact it was outside of the centre of London, I, I figured that I'd actually be able to get my head down rather than having my head turned by other temptations, which I am. I've got the, the least willpower of anyone on this planet, so... <laughs> no, we're
1: going to have to talk about that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm easy. I'm easy to break. If there's anything fun happening, I've got to be there.
1: But you, it sounds like you found school fun at this point.
0: Yeah, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, so I, I, I was I, I was caught up at that point. So I was joining the second year. It was called Visual Communication Design was the name of the course. Uh, so I was joining the second year of a three year degree, and I was back on track. I was like, right, and I was in London.
1: How's Dad feeling about this?
0: Oh, I think he was all right back then. That was better than than what was before. It was kind of a big thing, like coming from that part of the country. You know, there's still the majority of people still stay in their hometown or at least just move to a neighboring city like from Liverpool to Manchester or Leeds it wasn't everyone who gallivanted down to London so I was kind of proud of myself and it is that thing where you you have your persona in your hometown and then that first year of moving away and living away is it's that opportunity to redesign yourself isn't it to Mm -hmm. reinvent yourself and that first meeting with whoever you're going to be with for the next few years. You decide at that moment which version of yourself you want to present. And I remember being very aware of that. <laughs> and uh, some of my friends who might listen to this might be like, "Oh, wow, he was really planning his personality there, was he?" But it, it was it was more just an opportunity to shed some of the stuff I used to do back at home that was a bit more mischievous and time wastery.
1: Uh, you're you're a little too cryptic for my taste. I want some I want some specifics. I appreciate that you say that. I do think when you leave your hometown, you have an opportunity. It's not reinvention because you're the same person, but it is a chance to sort of interface with other people without their pre-existing expectations.
0: Yeah. I suppose what what I mean is I I intended to become an adult, really. I knew that I was a very childish adult at that stage. I, I guess I was 20 years old then. And yeah, I was immature and just loved being an idiot at any moment. I figured... I can't keep doing this forever, so now's the perfect opportunity to to kind of attempt to apply myself a little better and be someone who's, instead of being the cheeky scamp, being someone who's a little bit more applied and and a bit more together, I suppose. Because that's what I guess I thought I was in my head, but then you'd always fall back into that thing. But for another reason, I started reading about behavioural processes and and there's certain types of people where their behaviour is attached almost like geographically to a location or, or a place or a room. It's so true of me because I remember talking to somebody about that. Essentially, I, w- I went through a massive burnout in 2013. Well, I-, I refused to accept that that was a burnout. I thought, you know, I must be ill. I feel so bad. It must be something physical. And then when we finally got around to it, I think that somebody said to me, if you really want to change behaviours, you probably do have to remove yourself from the place where you behave in this way, where you work too hard, never say no, blah, blah, blah. Because that, for a lot of people, that is the solution. And... And thinking back, that was it, you know. It's almost like you'd have one personality with your mates on your estate at home and then a different personality in the classroom, and, and, and it was totally true of me. You know, I'd, I'd just be whatever personality I'd created in that space and, and stick with it. So it was interesting. I didn't know all that stuff then, but I remember moving down to London and being like, okay, here comes the sort of more cosmopolitan, worldly version of Mike.
1: Well, that sounds actually self-aware. I like that you brought this whole tangent up about, first of all, burnout. I think that's an important thing that as creatives we should discuss, but also this idea that social dynamics and behavior and personality can be so carved into geography and local systems that it can be really, really difficult to be someone different, especially when everyone around you is still operating as though you're the same.
0: Yeah. That always kind of made sense. It was the actual physical location thing that really fascinated yeah, me. And it's, and, yeah, that I, is. And I can relate to it completely as well. It's like, yeah, you to the point where you could arguably change the people in a space and you still wouldn't be able to snap out of the behaviors that you had formed in that space. It's just so interesting.
1: Yeah, like I had a friend who told me that he had a friend, so this is not somebody I knew personally, but he'd quit smoking, but he always had to have a cigarette in a rental car. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, that's exactly it. He could not get in a rental car yeah. without having a yeah. cigarette.
0: Good for him. <laughs> you no, know, it's fascinating. Those quirks that, that come with like places, it's, it's funny because, yeah, I guess when I'd go home between the semesters and stuff, I'd, uh, I'd probably just become the same old version of myself as well and go out on the town and have a lot of fun. And But not that I didn't do that in London. That was the formative thing. So that rather than the mountain bike and being a formative thing, I'd say that the move to London was the formative part of my my life. Yeah,
1: that, that makes a lot of sense. It also sounds like you clicked into something that felt like it had real momentum for you to find within yourself your own excellence and your own point of view and your own eight creative agency and and ability to have impact in the world. And that's a pretty powerful path to be on, especially when you're clicking so hard.
0: Yeah, the words you just use are exactly what it was, but I'd have never been able to come up with those words. I, <laughs> but I was on a mission. <laughs> I yeah. really was. I've, I mean, I, I've always been sort of very fortunate that my possibly my strongest sort of asset is my, my self-belief. That's what i had i I believe that I had something to say, and I couldn't wait to get It was almost like at that point I couldn't wait to get out of college to apply it to the real world already so i'm always I'm very impatient and but that's that's where I was at i was I'd almost gotten into that kind of catch up behavior even though I was caught up at that point. I never let go of it I don't think I have to this day. Which uh, again, uh-oh. that's, that's <laughs> we're, we're, we'll get to the burnouts. But <laughs> I think, I think yeah. you're, you're starting to see patterns.
1: I am, I am, I, which I which I love about this. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just sixty bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. So it sounds like you found your path in college and you're ready to get out into the world to apply your, your craft. What does that look like after graduation? How did you start to do that?
0: So I did two years at Ravensbourne. I did the, the graphic design course, which was called visual communication design. But after, mm-hmm. a year, after a year of that, I saw the people on the other side of the, the room that we were in and they were doing moving image design. In the classic uh, never-standing-still style, I switched for my third year to moving image design. There was a bunch of catching up to do there because I'd never touched you know, animation softwares or After Effects, but it was just this idea that I thought nothing could be any better than graphic design, and then someone told me that those guys over there were doing graphic design with a timeline. I was like, oh, okay, I'm going over there. I'll see you guys later. Uh, You're
1: a bit of a daredevil, aren't you? There's a sort of
0: healthy naivety, I'd say. Okay, okay. I'm certainly not an overthinker most of the time. I just saw that that looked like a load of fun, and it it felt a bit more future-proof. You know, graphic design was quite traditionalist back then, and it was, you know, you're doing layouts still for magazines and and newspapers and, and stuff like that, and I just saw what those guys were doing. It was... It felt like it was really interesting, and it was another challenge, so I jumped over there. So, yeah, I graduated with a degree in moving image design um, after scrambling to to get my stuff together over there.
1: Can you just give me a little context about how moving image design, like, what was the state of that industry? Was it mostly, like, motion graphics for movies and TV? Yeah,
0: yeah. So, what would that be? That would have been 2003, yeah so it was very much there was the web bubble thing sort of going on but that wasn't that definitely wasn't what we did that was I think that those courses were called interactive design and things like that but then our digital design digital media it was not that it was nothing to do with the internet it was it was graphic design with a timeline is, is the simplest way of putting it and you had the op- option to kind of use an, an audio companion with it so it was all broadcast design and yeah and if if you were lucky enough you, you get to work in the film world as well but the I graduated I got a job standard junior designer job and yeah cut my teeth doing sort of title sequences for you know daytime television shows and BBC documentaries and stuff, but nothing fancy. Just you know the the run of the mill TV world and TV promos. There was a lot of that going on.
1: I have some years logged in the TV industry, so oh, you do, oh, yeah. I know what you're talking about, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I, I got a job with a with a yeah, essentially a broadcast design company, and then switched to another one that was a bit cooler called Mainframe, and had a really nice sort of two and a half years there. Uh, they're still going strong. They're a great company, and then. Uh, in that job, Adam, who was the the managing director there, the owner, he, he kind of embraced my slight aggressive enthusiasm, let's call it. <laughs> and it, was a, it was a small company at the time, and I questioned, like, who was actually kind of making the creative calls at this stage, and he was like, me? <laughs> I'm like, okay, no, no, I get it. But I'm, I, I, I feel like you need a, a creative partner who's going to take that weight off your shoulders. And, you know, I was 24 years old or something, and. He was just like, are you sure? Are you sure? I was like, yeah. He's like, okay, you want to come to the meetings with me then? I'm like, definitely, yeah. So he gave me the title of head of design. I think I was asking for creative director. He was like, shut up. Don't be silly. <laughs> uh, but he, he embraced that sort of like, you want to take control if, or try to, then obviously give it a go. But So I was learning on the job and I, I was just really, really ambitious. Playing catch-up, sometimes a little too much. So, you know, like just hearing myself tell that story, it's like, wow, that was a, that was a little bit forward, a bit douchey, but... It's what I was.
1: I mean, I guess it can, it can be douchey, but also unbridled enthusiasm is is sometimes a pretty powerful energy, especially if somebody is overburdened or has too much on their plate. If somebody really, really, you know, is enthusiastic about taking some of that, it's not control. It's 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 almost like adding energy to the mix so that it's lighter and easier to
0: move yeah it was it was for that reason to try and make the company as dynamic as it could be and and you know with always with a personal motive because anyone who says they've not got one is is lying but you can channel that into a into a collective as well but to get us up the food chain you know to Mm -hmm. be to be doing that sort of top rung work we were doing really nice work but there was definitely space to grow so i was like already sort of seeing the company as a project even though I was just a designer kind of thing and you know yeah sticking my nose in where it maybe wasn't needed or wanted sometimes but the bigger picture is definitely my natural forte that's what I see easiest on whether it's a kind of design project or just when you're renovating a home or, or doing whatever Mm-hmm. I, I, I definitely always assess the bigger picture before kind of assessing what the details or the smaller pictures within that are. So that's just the way I'm made. So that's that probably contributes to why I stick my nose into bigger pictures that are nothing to do with me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that that makes sense. I always describe that kind of thinking or, or mentality as, well, it can be nonlinear, but it's also kind of an aerial view, like, like a, a hawk or somebody that Sees things from above and then zooms in in really like granular detail, and then can zoom out like like an aperture or focus.
0: Yeah, yeah. I hadn't honed this back then, but over the years, I've worked out that that is the trick to sort of work out where to use your energy and your enthusiasm. It's that aperture sort of thing where you yeah just get you kind of drop yourself in and parachute into the right parts of the job at the right times to make sure you're giving other people space within the project and yeah using your best skills in the right places.
1: It sounds like you were very bold and enthusiastic at Mainframe, and you were doing some interesting work there.
0: Yeah. After two and a half years, I left them to join a company called Precursor. They were my favorite studio when I was in college. They were the three guys, super cool, just doing MTV stuff, you know, all the stuff that you really... Wished you were doing the stuff that was in the books. There was a bookstore, still still there in Covent Garden, I think, Magma. Uh, I, I'd just go there on weekends and just look at all the design books because I couldn't afford to buy them. But these guys were in all those books and about kind of motion design and broadcast design. So I'd always obsessed with them. I'd asked them for a job when I left college and they said, no, we we don't need you, we don't need anyone, we're, we're fine. So I was, I was sort of thinking, you've not seen the last of me. And then I'd, I'd pestered them repeatedly over the years. They finally got in touch with me and said, okay, I think we're, we're ready to, to hire someone like yourself now. So I, I went and joined those guys. There was three founders running that place. I had to kind of work out where I was going to fit in because obviously I wasn't going to be, it was a sort of a different role to being in a company where I was trying to carve myself out as a creative lead. And But I, just, I was just so into those guys, I'd, I kind of idolized them. But then very shortly after I joined them, they disbanded. for oh no. For various reasons. I think it was only six weeks after I joined they oh the, they had to disband the company and that's essentially one of those guys was Tim Swift who's my partner at Man vs Machine that same night that they disbanded Tim and I met in the pub and vowed to start a company the next day and that is exactly how Man vs Machine started with uh, the founder of my previously favourite studio so it was a very kind of fortunate sequence of events We decided to just kind of hit the ground running with what was already available to us, essentially.
1: Whoa. Were you able to build off of Precursor with Man vs. Machine?
0: We kind of analyzed it, and we didn't want to just make Precursor with a different name, and it was, it was definitely a new company. We had a chat, we, you know, we, we vowed to do it together and take that leap together, even though we didn't know each other that well but I definitely respected Tim and I I think he respected me because he'd he'd given me a job an opportunity yeah we we analysed it and we were like what's out there what's missing so we evolved it for sure and it was kind of as simple as back then it felt like there was design agencies who were great with the kind of conceptual side of things and the design side of things but then when they were trying to apply it to kind of more high end animation and CG it was not coming out as good, you know, so great idea. Oh, animation's a bit lacking. And then there was the big post houses where they'd be doing stuff that was kind of slightly run of the mill, but in in its kind of conceptually. But then the impressive part was the execution. So we just figured let's try and be the one stop shop that can do both of those things. It kind of made sense to us. So that's what we wanted to become like the elite studio were concept and execution were equally important so essentially craft we we just wanted to be our house style wasn't going to be anything particular that would form itself but like being that bit more refined and that bit more crafted than anything anybody else in in our sort of design world we were a design Mm -hmm. a design agency who happens to make their own stuff and it happens to be as good as anywhere else you could get it made that was the ambition
1: don't you find if you can make your own stuff and you are the one with the vision, you are almost the only one who can make it to the standard it needs to be in order to really express that vision?
0: Yeah. Here in the States, it's even more extreme of people kind of staying in the lanes. Well, that's what I've noticed when we've been building out the LA office. It's definitely like the word generalist is more of a dirty word here than it is in the UK, you know, when you're looking for artists and things. So the point being, we wanted to mix it all together. So, you know, Tim and I were sort of designer slash creative directors, the pair of us. Luckily for me, Tim had excellent business acumen, um, so he could uh, look after that side of it as well. And and it was my job to sort of yeah, answer the phone and stuff like that and, and do this, the more sort of front of house stuff while he was looking after the back of house. But the first thing we did was hire the best animator visual effects guy that we could possibly find.
1: By the way, this is version 2.0 of you on skateboards and your football kit.
0: Exactly. I mean, that, that, <laughs> that's, that's, it. that's why it always comes back to me, that thing. It's, it's this thing where it, it doesn't matter. We're, <laughs> we're just doing stuff and we're doing it. We know where we want to go. It doesn't matter how we get there or what we're wearing. It's, yeah. it's, uh, some of the stuff I was wearing back then as well not, not, was not ideal. But it was that thing where it's like, why separate them?
1: So much gets lost in translation. Yeah, and
0: it's like when you're trying to verbalize it, it sounds like you inherently separate them to verbalize it. You're like concept and craft coming Mm -hmm. together. It's idea and execution coming together, but it's all the stuff in the middle is what it actually is. But it's hard to say what that is because there's not really a general term for it.
1: I totally agree with you. And in, in a way, like separating concept and craft is the artificial fission yes, yes, that exactly. shouldn't have occurred in the first place like why do we have to put them back together they never should have been separated
0: exactly and it's it's this idea that on a grander scale without being super specific to kind of our world of moving image design it's this whole thing that thinking and making need to be separate and that's I think that exists in all disciplines of life and walks of life and it's just a shame because we just wanted to be tinkerers the way we sometimes refer to ourselves if if we're struggling to communicate to someone what our sort of model is is we're basically a visual r&d studio who never misses a deadline we don't like open ended stuff there needs to be a finite timeline there needs to be a you know a, a, a clear problem to be solved but we we then become an r&d studio which where we will attempt to solve that problem yes through thinking of course but also through just making and trying things and a bit more like the kind of sculpting process than the the kind of standard okay let's write some ideas let's storyboard them up let's put them into animation send them to the to the floor below to be animated it's it was it was intentionally not that ever
1: yeah that sounds fun i want to go hang out there yeah and it's <laughs> like
0: that was the whole business model and it, and it essentially still is to this day we didn't even have job titles for many many years uh it was just you know No, I mean, we didn't have business cards. We didn't do any promotion. It was just this idea that the work will be the marketing. It's as simple as that. If we can get the work we know we're capable of, we're fine. And, you know, good work leads to good work, leads to better work.
1: Well, that's certainly what happened. I mean, since founding in 2007, you were 26 years old. Yeah. Very nice work partnering with somebody who already had the business acumen. By the way, that makes the calculation of the risk a, lo- a little bit more. Yeah, easy. it
0: never it never felt like a risk, but we we managed to make it a little riskier by deciding to be a, a high end studio from day one. And again, I, I'm not saying that this never doesn't work for some studios, but we were of the opinion. That this whole kind of, you know, start with mid-range work and work your way up, we thought that was bullshit, to be perfectly honest. It's like, if you want to be doing global network rebrands and multi-million dollar car ads in a few years' time, you don't want to be doing TV promos right now. You can get through it that way, but we didn't see that as the way. We thought, because we've got a foundation and contacts let's not do anything until we get a job like a high concept job in that is the sort of work we intend to do for the foreseeable future so that was where the risk came because we had to bide our time and then a rebrand pitch came in for one channel four channels that we have you know i can't remember exactly how we we, we, were, we were just making people aware we existed at that point and we pulled out all the stops to to win it no matter what and then not long after that, we partnered with a more traditional brand design studio called Proud, who were as small as we were, who were around the corner from us. And they'd, they'd managed to win the the sci-fi rebrand when they went from spelling it correctly to spelling it wrong. Back yeah. In yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they won that pitch. They asked us to come on board with them as their you know, motion partner, essentially. So yes, yeah, nice. we, we did that with them. So it worked out. There was a bit of a risk that that could have just fallen flat on its face because we felt ourselves... Sort of above a certain amount type of work, but it was it was a business decision. That was a that was a, something that we thought was not pretentious. It was just that's what's going to be best for this business.
1: I hear the strategy in it because I also am well aware. Sometimes, if you start with bread and butter stuff in the middle, then that's what you become known for, and it's really hard to challenge people's expectations and convince them that you're capable of so much more.
0: Really hard, um, <laughs> yeah. Especially when you're working with. Ad agencies. We work direct to client predominantly, but we do work with agencies as well. Obviously, they're looking for someone to do something that's almost like a pre-written, pre pre-mood-boarded, pre-conceived idea. So they just look for the people who've done that the best already.
1: Right, right. They're not trying to reinvent the wheel, so they don't want somebody who. No, else No,
0: why should they put their neck on the line for you? So it's and that's why working direct to client was always our intention as well. So it was a it was a simple business. Yeah, like I said, the, the job titles were were not really a thing but were internally i can't remember whether i read this somewhere at some point in in an interview with someone else and i just latched onto it and loved it the the term or or it's just something that came up but we refer to ourselves as thinkers who make and makers who think and that's
1: good that's that's
0: how the business had to be balanced and 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 again same to this day so the hardest part of this whole thing is the talent of the staff that's why the first person we hired was a guy called John Norlander who is out there doing great stuff these days and he was an amazing sort of generalist could do anything in that executional space but he had an eye it's not like what do you want me to do now kind of guy so you force the makers to think and we force the thinkers to make because that's what we do but obviously hopefully within that there's a natural kind of handoff of when it becomes someone else's responsibility and the you know the support mechanism becomes the thinker versus the support mechanism for the thinking being the, the maker.
1: It's also empowering the, the maker to have some ownership over the thinking and yeah, the thinker yeah. to have some ownership over the making. And so you're equally invested and you're also both kind of swapping hats all the time.
0: Ex- accountability, essentially. We're, yeah, we're all in this together. It should just work, go in the meeting room. Even if you're a high-end 3D artist... If you've got the time, go and sit in that brainstorm because you'd be surprised at what it might fire up or what you might have to contribute. And there's a lot of very, very humble, very talented, technically driven people out there, but even if they just kind of absorb and then they go away and start playing with a little tool they've been building in their spare time and they're like, mm, this could be relevant, that was our that was our thing. Is this idea that concept doesn't just mean words and thoughts, it can mean... Something that you accidentally made for another project that you've parked on a shelf somewhere and then you make it relevant. I, I sometimes kind of over this point to kind of make the point, but post-rationalising is a huge part of what we do. It's a stigma where no one will admit it and, you know, it's almost like a, a critique of someone. Oh, I mean, you, you know, you- we all kind of look at our rivals' work and, you know, da-da-da. someone will be like, no, mm, it looks a bit post-rationalised to me, but... That's so much of what we do. We post-rationalize our own visuals to be relevant to client briefs. And it's not always in that order, but its you'd be surprised how often it is in that order.
1: Doesn't post-rationalization, though, kind of just mean, like, I did this intuitively, I'm not sure where it come from? Oh, now I see it. Now I understand it. Yeah. Here's where that must have been coming from. It's I great. Feel like... Yeah, it, it's that's just, exactly what it is.
0: <laughs> yeah, oh, maybe maybe it's gone away now and, and now that people are so much more kind of on the tools and that coming through college kind of with these 3D skills and they're kind of making their own ideas. But there was definitely a thing where everyone was obsessed with having this beautiful sort of, you know, immaculate conception of an idea that was pure and then it was realised yeah, us. no, that's
1: still that's still a thing. Yeah,
0: I'm I'm so stuck in our own world that I, I, don't really, <laughs> I don't even know how how things work outside anymore. But but it was just this is the idea that you kind of like adopt an idea. It's not an immaculate conception. You, you've mm-hmm. just you've got this visual that you've accidentally made because it was a kind of happy accident from a previous project or whatever. Someone's been playing in the downtime, and you're just like, this is too good not to put in the world. So let's find a way of getting this thing into the world. And I, I really hope that some people do, but if I ever end up in a, any kind of teaching capacity, I will teach post-rationalisation, because it's a, it's a really useful skill. Is, it, is that even a word, post-rationalisation?
1: Well, you know, I'm going to have to do some digging after this to make sure I'm understanding it correctly, or maybe we can just make up our own definition. But I am in a teaching capacity, and so I'll do some testing on teaching post-rationalization. It's
0: it's a life skill. Report back to you. Yeah. It's just the idea, who can write the best concept most convincingly? (laughs) Give give them a visual and ask them to write a concept that makes it look like it came before the visual. (laughs) Because that's what people want to buy, like... Like, first-time clients, we don't tell them that, oh, yeah, we had this on the shelf for ages, and then we remembered about it and thought, this is actually perfect for what you're doing. So they generally want to think that it's an immaculate conception, so you don't do (laughs) that. But then with our repeat clients, we definitely let them in on the ride where it's like, you know what? We're just throwing shapes. We're just playing around <laughs> and we'll see, we'll see if anything good happens. And if it doesn't, then maybe, you know, we'll try something else. And, and we just invite them along for the ride. And we're super transparent with, with our clients and we show them the, the fuck ups as, as well as the, the stuff that is successful and that we all have a laugh about it together.
1: Isn't that beautiful like a- after you've built trust with a client and you can kind of default into your shorthand and they know that fuck ups are part of the process and they're they're also, you know, inevitable so let's all just sort of have the inside jokes together yeah, and yeah, get yeah. this done
0: exactly yeah that's i mean that's another a frustration of mine is never let the culture of the client being the enemy creep into the studio is, is a huge thing i think and it's it's the easy option the bigger the companies you work for the bigger the you know you aspire to work for all these global brands which we're lucky enough too but it, there's a lot more bureaucracy so there's a lot more last minute sort of changes of track and, and feedback and but you can just never let that become sort of let's all turn on the clients because they're they're paying you basically they're the reason you've got a job yeah and, and that's your job to respond to their feedback and sometimes it's frustrating but you just need that culture where it's like we try and create a siege mentality between us and our immediate clients and because they've always got a boss who they report to which is you know ultimately like a chief marketing officer or whatever in a big agency so we try and make it feel like we're in it together and we're just trying to impress their boss because that's that's the only way you get really cool stuff out there is by impressing someone in an ivory tower who's going to green light it. It's not more complicated than that.
1: I love that you distilled it down into that simple goal, which <laughs> is not always easy to achieve, but at least if you can see it that way, then you know what you're doing and you have to bring everybody along with you because they have to be impressing everybody that they're working with above them.
0: Yeah, to the point where we'll even ask clients who we're working with for the first time so you know what's the people who we won't get to speak to but you speak to um, yeah what what are they like what's their personality are they they from a creative background are they going to be looking at the stuff we you share with them on their phone in a cab on the way to the airport or are they kind of people who like prefer to make kind of an hour for you once every two weeks and really get into it and they want to know the whole process because that will change how we give you decks and information so, yeah,
1: that's so important. Yeah, oh, and, wow, And some that's are more forthcoming
0: than others, but you, usually they're just slightly a bit like, well, all right, uh, well, what's, why is this relevant? But but then, then it kind of becomes more relevant as we go along.
1: It helps them help the project.
0: Don't waste your time rebuilding a whole deck the way your boss likes to see it when you could have just told us how, you know, oh, no, if you say, we'll distill your deck down to the five or six best pages, we'll be like, cool, we'll, we'll just try our best to give you like a... A six to ten page deck, and then you're good to go, right? And so it's, and I find that side really fun. Almost the, the psychology of it, Mm -hmm. especially Mm -hmm. you know after you've been doing it a long time, and you you become a slight more of a sort of back into the bigger picture role because I've stepped away from the sort of the day to day design. You, it that's what becomes interesting is like how can we win these pitches in different ways? You know, sometimes you know you've got a great idea, but sometimes you know that there's a. another company on the pitch list and you want that client but the other company has done the last three versions of this same job that you're about to do so how can you find those kind of little percentiles to be a refreshing alternative let's say rather than you know because it's the other companies to lose how can you somehow just prize it away from them sometimes it doesn't just come down to the, the idea or the treatment sometimes there's other things at play but you just need to accept those and it's not a creativity competition, unfortunately, this business. No, it's no, a, it's not. It's a lot of other stuff, competition.
1: I think it's important if you're the creative conceptualizing and technical building that you do is all usually in service of a strategy, then of course you're going to have a strategy yourself. Like strategy is going to be something that you think about. And so the psychology of how to win these pitches is that strategy of becoming really attuned to what means what to who and how to play on the field in such a way as to surprise your opponent or not even surprise your opponent, but like you said, refresh the the client in a way that maybe wins it for you. But the psychology of winning pitches, I think, is something i'm really interested in and yeah, and something i haven't been that good at historically so hearing you talk about your winning strategy is very fascinating to me
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's it almost became sort of a an obsession for me <laughs> that was almost the main thing was was winning the pitch and uh, and then you'd sort of i don't you'd almost lose sight of what the objective was sometimes because you were so into this idea that well, punching above your weight and that's what Ah, uh, okay I, I mean that's probably how i should have described my my formative years is I was always the kid who loved being the underdog in, in, in any situation. I was I was a really small kid. I only had a growth spurt when I was like 18, 19 years old. I grew about six inches. When was, <laughs> wow. So I always had the mentality of a small kid, but I really reveled in that mode, and, and, and that's one of the reasons we have stayed relatively small because we like being the underdog it's a lot easier to get yourself up for a pitch if you feel like you've got something to prove than if it should be a foregone conclusion so we love nothing more than to see a a 300 person company on a pitch list and and then little old and and off we go
1: Ooh, i like it still scrappy after all these years
0: (laughs) (laughs) that'll never go away
1: so I want to talk about your creative process, but while we're on the sort of growth of Man vs. Machine, I think it's important to talk about what led to like, the big burnout of
0: 2013. Yeah. I mean, Man vs. Machine started and we, we kind of grew it in that way. As I said, we're, we'd find a thinker who makes and then a th- make who thinks and then a thinker who makes, and we kind of set ourselves sporadically in the studio and we just get on with it. We didn't even have producers for a a good few years. Tim and I would just do all that stuff as well. We never had any financial backing or anything like that when we started the business. It was just us two, you know. All the risk was on our shoulders. Wow. Didn't have much money, so we just kind of sold everything we had and and made it work and, and, yeah, trusted ourselves. So we kind of clung on to all aspects. And we weren't big. You know, we'd, we'd grow kind of two people a year if that. It was about finding the right people. But I suppose by so it's by 2013. How long have we been going then? Sort of six years. Yeah, I'd I'd been feeling off for a, for about a year, but I'd kept it quiet. Just not feeling quite right. Low energy. Blah blah blah. I didn't even tell my wife, who I met on the first day at Ravensbourne. By the way, that that day I mentioned of moving down to London, we met. Oh
1: my goodness, what well, a fortuitous!
0: I know. <laughs> when I, just when I was about to start thinking about reinventing myself, she did. It. She came in and did it for me. <laughs> but anyway. Wow. Uh, and I kind of ignored it in, like, typical British stiff upper lip idiot style until I kind of went to a doctor and said I just feel, you know, my, my, my main sort of symptoms were sort of this constant slight dizziness and lightheadedness and just not feeling myself at all. I was convinced I was genuinely ill, you know. I found it impossible to believe that it could be a, a mental illness or, you know, a burnout or depression because I was it was so physically heavy on me and I refused to believe and my wife was she's Swedish and they understand that a burnout kind of is part of life over there they they almost plan for it in a strange way which is really forward thinking but I wouldn't accept it and in the end I just I I had to go to Tim my partner and say I I don't think I think I need to leave work for a while because I'm not going to get any better otherwise and he being the absolute legend that is just said just go away and come back when you're ready it's as simple as that and and it ended up being almost a year, during which time I just had to almost reset. And but I I, I had to have every test under the sun before I'd accept for, for you know every physical condition possible before I would my brain could comprehend that it was a mental. In the olden days, I guess they called it a nervous breakdown, a burnout. I just hit the wall completely. I was barely like functioning properly. Everything was just difficult. So yeah, I accepted it. And then started the process of, of fixing it, which is very, very slow. But like I say, it took about a year, and I still, you know, and and I manage it to this day.
1: What was your particular process of of fixing it? I mean, did it involve like you know, new setting new balance for yourself and more rest, or what?
0: When I stepped away, obviously, I was kind of in the thick of everything. So it was that whole thing where you're you're nervous about stepping away because you carried so much of the, you know, you were the face of the company as. As, alongside tim so it's like oh this could be detrimental to the company but then you realize what's the point of me killing myself for this so i remember tim asking me like what do you want me to say if anyone asks where you are do we want to come up with a story or do i just say you're off because you're not well <laughs> and i said yeah just just say that just i just need to focus on that so let's let's just keep it simple um, and yeah, tell them I'm, I'm burnt out i need a rest it was interesting that quite a few people kind of got in touch with me privately from from within our industry, who had you mm-hmm. know peers who I met along the way, and sort of like discreetly said to me, "Listen, I've been through something similar to what I think you are going through, uh, and here are the things I wish I'd done." And it was it was and and they were still kind wow. of like very discreet and quiet about it, and and it was just it was so that was really reassuring. But there was just some great little nuggets in there like obviously meditation is is the big one and, and that did help a huge amount when I kind of got started doing it properly. Exercise, but I, you know, once I felt strong enough to exercise again, that, that's huge. But there was little things like reflexology became a big one. Someone had recommended reflexology to me and I just, I started going for that and just loved it. The gist of it was I didn't know how to relax. I didn't have the skill of relaxation in my locker. It didn't exist. It, it was always something. And, you know, we were in the company, And also me and my wife were kind of flipping properties on the side and living in them at the same time. So it was just that whole thing, you know, Wow. the pattern of like me never being content with what's there and trying to push for something else. And uh, so it it made sense, you know, in hindsight, it all made perfect sense. But yeah, I I would just say just I should not have ignored the the symptoms and pretended I was fine for so long because that's what put me in the deepest hole possible.
1: But that's all you knew how to do.
0: Yeah, that is literally all I knew how to do. Actually, I mean, if I'd have actually shared it with people earlier, I'm sure they'd have given me advice that I could have used, but instead I just stuck with my very basic understanding of the human body and just power, try and power through, power through, and it, it really didn't work. But thankfully, I mean, there was point times when I thought I'd, I'd never get back to even an 80% version of myself, but thankfully I did in the end.
1: I'm glad to hear that you're you're feeling good these days and that you had to put in the work It's a weird kind of work because it's not about working harder. It's about letting go. But it's hard to let go. So teaching yourself all the little places where you were hanging on and all the little ways and techniques that you could do to let go and also giving yourself permission to let go.
0: I still don't think I can let go, though. That's, That's the thing that I learned. I learned that my solution wouldn't be to try and teach myself to care less. Because it's just not in me. That that is something I cannot change. If I'm in a problem, a a, a, a situation, I don't have a sliding scale of I'll care about that a little bit, and and I, and I'll forget about it when I get home. So I worked out that I just had to be really selective about what situations I did. You know, to your analogy earlier, when when you kind of zoom the aperture in and what mm-hmm. on, that's what I had to I had to really learn to master that. Either completely. Don't involve yourself in, in aspects of the business that you don't offer a lot to. And the areas that you do thrive in and can offer a lot to really bury yourself in those it was the solution, essentially.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. Don't you feel like even within those things that you do care so much about, there is a kind of movement that will happen whether you're pushing it or not? And if you don't wear yourself out pushing it because it's not necessary, that's a kind of letting go?
0: Yeah. Yeah, there is, I suppose.
1: I don't mean to care less. I I almost mean it's it's more about like knowing when the current is doing the work.
0: Yes, exactly. That's and a lot of it comes down to trusting those around you. And I realized that I was just such a control freak. That was, you know, if you ask me to in two words, what's the cause of your burnout? Control freak. Oh,
1: okay. <laughs> that, okay, let that be a word of warning to all the control freaks out there. Yeah, because <laughs> it'll it, get you.
0: It's that whole thing where it's just like it, it's easier if I do it myself than spend half a day trying to teach somebody else. I just never graduated from that. So that's, that was the great thing. A lot of good things have come out of it to be perfectly honest is like me sort of learning how to have a more healthy lifestyle but also things that have really helped the company and, and allowed take away my stranglehold. It wasn't me who just lovingly called myself the creative dictator at times because it was uh, <laughs> at, at times I can be quite demanding of people and, and forceful. But um, that all those things, yeah, it's it's trust. I think it's that that sort of current as you call it. I wasn't there for nine months and it mm-hmm. it ran just fine. <laughs> so it was like, okay, maybe the be all and end all isn't me which was really healthy to, to learn.
1: Have you found other unexpected benefits as well? Maybe not even business ones, but, but personal ones. I mean, obviously your health is a huge one, but...
0: I suppose just the, the knowledge that it is a thing and the, an understanding of mental health as a bigger thing and how misunderstood it is still compared to physical conditions and all that kind of stuff. is. is I can have conversations very comfortably about things that I probably wouldn't have been able to before that in just a kind of emotional understanding sense.
1: And I also think it's really those times when you're in need but you're not asking, but people reach out anyway. Yeah. It's just such a beautiful aspect of humanity. Like, yeah. I love
0: that. Yeah, it's the best. There's always going to be a few bumps in the road and that was a, a pretty big one. But like I say, it's, it's something that I would love to find time to kind of delve into a little bit more going forward and not trying to find a fix for that but just how it exists in our industry and I know a lot of people are are writing a lot of really interesting stuff but I think a lot of it is quite academic still so it's like how can we make that more of a something that's almost a practice that we learn a bit like almost like the post-rationalization you don't want to teach people to know when to back off too early but it's you, you kind of do need to at the same time.
1: Yeah, I mean I think it has to it has to be understood to the point that we build it into our business practices, our creative practices and we support each other around it and it's becomes a sort of common enough vernacular that, that it doesn't feel difficult to to bring up or talk about.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. The way we operate still to this day is is through hunger. If we win a job that we all really want to do we'll go to whatever length it takes to make that job as good as it can be even if it is working long hours and all that kind of stuff so i don't think the solution is to sort of try and remove that hunger from the sort of the labor intensity of the way we work because that is almost inherent to what we do but it's just trying to like you say allow space around that it can't be that all the time that you, you sometimes need to like let the current carry you, like you say, and but sometimes, yeah, you want to be swimming upstream to try and do something that you're going to be proud of and becomes part of your as a collective and as individuals. It's something that we're, you know, the best thing we did that year. Essentially, that's what we're we're still trying to strive to do. And I, so it's, it's a it's a kind of strange contradiction, really, isn't it? Because you you're pushing yourself to try and be the best motion design studio in the world. That's that's what we wake up and try and do every single day. And
1: yeah but if you kill yourself then that's a, not a, you're a, ex- not gonna reach that goal exactly exactly
0: <laughs> so that's why I think it's we could talk about it till you blue in the face but it's like yeah but everything I say I've probably contradicted myself in the last 12 months never mind the last 15 years since we started the studio so even though I know the pitfalls I probably still fall into them it's a, it's really interesting to work out especially with all the kind of the changes in working rhythms and habits is it, it could even be a good time to try and implement some some stuff that protects people, but maybe everyone's not as stupid as me. And when most people feel sick, they actually go to the doctor. <laughs> uh,
1: no, I know. I, I know people, there are people in my lives that are exhibiting symptoms that I think honestly are really stress induced, but they're, you know, they're somatizing and they're real physical symptoms that are plaguing them. And they're treating them in ways that are more medical than psychological. And, you know, part of me is very much invested in this idea of a, of a holistic approach. Like you gotta, you gotta treat all angles, your, your body, mind, soul, and spirit. And that's going to mean different things for different people. So you got to find how you can push yourself and go with the current. For some people, that's going to be a daily meditation practice or surrounding them with people that they trust, all of that stuff. But it's, too reductive to think that other people have it figured out and they go to the doctor and get it sorted and this problem was yeah
0: yeah you know, Ineptic- just due in- to
1: your own ineptitude
0: <laughs> yeah yeah no it's it's uh it's something that it's it's interesting actually the with yeah my wife i said my wife's swedish there's almost like an an allotted burnout allowance almost no the, the way i understand it from the way she talks about it is like yeah it's it's not abnormal for someone at around a certain age when you've been working for a good sort of 10, 15 years to sort of call in a burnout and say, I think I just need to take three months or whatever to reset myself. And that's British wow. mental health is definitely not the <laughs> Definitely not. So that's. And it, they that's get to quite, keep their job? Yeah, yeah, it's protected. Yeah, yeah. They've, they've got a crazy, crazy social system over there.
1: I'm curious, you talked about kind of being interested in the psychology of winning pitches did this whole experience make you interested in your own psychology
0: not massively no because i guess in a a weird way the key to winning pitches is is creating the most concise pitch that's what i believe you know getting rid of the shit and boiling it down to to a palatable thing and i suppose that's what i tried to do with my (laughs) <laughs> with my own personal sort of understanding of my my psychological state, if you like, is like, all right, I'm a simple being. Let's just work out which things I need and which things I don't need and just move forward with the things I need. I, it's not led me on a sort of deeper journey into psychology, but it's definitely given me a massive sort of dose of empathy. Before, I I probably would have been, like, turned a nose up or poofed if someone told me they were tired so they need to take a bit of time off I I probably would have poo-pooed it but now obviously I've got a very different understanding of that what that could mean
1: well I mean you never want bad things to happen to people but you do when they do happen you want them to be actually sort of blessings in disguise and it sounds like this this was for you in that you were able to not only recover from it, but learn a more sustainable way of working with yourself and working with others in the process.
0: And, and yeah, and I guess like as I said earlier, the fact that I am not as important as I thought I was was, <laughs> was, was, was probably the you know that's Isn't that
1: liberating. It is it was
0: that was really liberating. So that that's the, the most poignant lesson that came from it. Probably is like okay, so, but that's the beauty of being a collective, and that's why we we are a collective first. Or it turns out that's one of the massive advantages of it, rather than being a, you know, as a, a solo designer who's kind of a named studio or a production company where we have named directors who kind of win pitches under their own name through our under our wing. We always work as man versus machine. The collective. I don't put my name on projects. Other people don't put their names on it. We work together. Man versus machine is the product that people buy, not the individuals. So obviously, when the life eventualities happen we're in a much better position to deal with it than if we were all trying to compete with each other internally kind of thing or
1: yeah it makes the whole man part more resilient and the machine part more fluid you can absorb the shock and adapt
0: yeah it's going to happen and it will continue to happen because it's it creeps up it's about having a support mechanism in place the whole time
1: so when did you move to los angeles and was was that about removing yourself from the geographic place where your behaviour was destroying you?
0: No. Luckily, we moved studios as I was coming back, actually. It was a, a very happy coincidence that we, we it was time to move to a larger studio. I kind of came back, and then within six months, we actually did move to a, a new studio, so I could actually apply that thing of, like, okay, fresh start, different room, same people. But... Uh, yeah, I remember that being a thing. So that that happened. That was a nice, well-timed moment, which helped.
1: How do you like Los Angeles? I lived there for 20 years.
0: I love Los Angeles, yeah. So I, I moved here five and a half years ago. Yeah, as a kid, he was into kind of skateboarding, BMX.
1: Oh, yeah. That's your, that's your South, place. Those s- are your people.
0: Southern California was always the kind of mecca, and I've always been a bit of an file. So it was time- we got up to uh, a certain number in London where we felt like the studio is at a really comfortable size. Adding more people probably isn't going to strengthen us. So let's try and repeat the model, essentially, in a, in a new territory where there's fresh talent. So Los Angeles was the place that I would like to go, and we, we all agreed that that was the place to go. Off I went <laughs> to uh, to Los Angeles. We're here five and a half years later, and I I, I adore this this place. It's uh, for someone who likes to have as many hobbies and recreational interests as possible at any given time. This there's not many places better than this.
1: I'm glad you're having a good time. You've talked a lot about your creative process in terms of running the business, in terms of thinking about how to make things happen, being a thinker and a make who makes and a maker who thinks moving image design and motion graphics is out of my wheelhouse, except I do recognize the tinkerer at play here. It's it, There's a very kind of hands-on materiality that underpins a lot of it. And there's kind of a celebration of the the physical, tangible aspects of things by way of exploded view. And so is that something that you think has developed from your sort of intimate understanding of materials and how things get made and go together
0: I wouldn't say that but it is it is something that has been a very successful speciality of ours but we are obsessed with craft you know that's where the internal competition does exist in our studios where people are just always trying to almost one up each other in a kind of competitively healthy way and you know someone, someone will kind of find that way of getting something to look that bit more material and yeah we do a lot of product driven stuff and we our approach is again quite reductive where we're not trying to make an a narrative film that has a product placed in it conveniently we make product films we put the product front and center make it the star and then ironically i think a lot of people think by Showing less product, you're being more creative, and you're as a director, you're expressing more of your individual style and, and leaving your legacy. But I kind of think the opposite. We've done a few. Let's, here's an example. Pepsi. Let's say Pepsi. You know, one of the most formulaic kind of brands in the world. We did a few Pepsi ads. Let's just define what boxes need to be ticked. You know, there's the there's the ice shot. There's the the consumption shot, and there's the. They have to exist. Do not waste your energy fighting those. <laughs> do those really well. And then you the clients on board, they know you get it, but then you've got these gaps, which is the other forty, fifty percent of the spot. That's where you can you've bought yourself the time to have fun in those spots. You know, it needs to be coherent, but structure is a huge part of what we do as well. We don't always believe there has to be a beginning, middle end. We just We've got a very strong belief in like (laughs) uber-crafted eye candy and that can be enough sometimes. It doesn't have to have a big reason, a big story behind it. It just needs to engage people and for them to lock into it and then they can release it and let it go. But we actually find that we can be a lot more creative when we accept that there's a really rigid structure and recipe to to how certain clients do their thing. That wasn't something we discovered immediately, but... I'd say it definitely is true because you, you're you not fighting the clients. You're doing exactly what they need you to do, but you're trying to find a new way of doing it and a better way of doing it, but you're, you're ticking those big boxes. It's actually by putting product front and center, it, it naturally puts us in that kind of tactile physical world because the products, we don't tend to work with many digital product clients. They tend to be tech products and cars and anything else. So yeah, we, we've become sort of, very well versed in in creating these kind of fantastic worlds. I could go on forever because I'm obsessed with trying to find this kind of perfect universal language. Where the simplest way I can say it is like we've always been obsessed with mainstream, not trying to make stuff that Tim and I never wanted to make things where our you'd go down to the pub and meet all your other designer, director friends, and they'd be like, Oh, that's brilliant, mate, well done. And, and then you know, they're the only kind of 30 people who'd ever see it because it's just that cool we wanted to do stuff that gets 300 million views but still make it good that was always channeled so it's like making mainstream cool embracing mainstream we'd much sooner kind of step away at the end of it all and have rebranded and relaunched and helped define the visual language of the biggest companies in the world and have as many million eyes on it as possible and therefore having hopefully influenced taste levels more than and change culture.
1: Yeah, 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 totally. And
0: I, I'm, I, we've been doing it long enough now. Where I do think, in the 15 years we've done it, we have shaped the visual language of, of some pretty huge companies like Nike, Apple have a pretty strong visual language already. But we've we've been a part of that journey with them. And then and then there's a, a whole lot of other clients who we we work with, and we're in the process of doing that with now. And it's fun, and it's that obsession with. Craft of us trying to kind of eat another couple of percent of, and it's not always trying to make it photo real. Sometimes you're intentionally trying to make it a little bit fantastical because that just adds a little something that people can't access or can't shoot. So that's why you should come to us because, yeah, we we use live action as well when the problem requires it. But usually we try to get into this kind of in between world by embracing the kind of recipes and the formulas of slightly more traditional advertising, you're putting a twist on reality as opposed to trying to create a completely fantasy world from scratch. Good luck selling that to a client. Whereas when you're taking something everybody understands uh, but then just putting your own twist on it or shifting the perspective slightly, which is quite literally the idea with some of the things we've done where we have altered perspectives (laughs) and, and bent worlds, that's where the ideas come from. It's the result of that, of us embracing the product first and foremost and then working from there out. And this idea of, of things always being grounded in some kind of reality, but you can pick and choose which realities you keep and which ones you play with, you know. Something might look photoreal, but it might act in the way it's... Physics might be completely wrong, for example, and that's, that's interesting to watch. It never fails. And you can pick and choose which combinations of those things, you know, it's like correct, correct, incorrect. And whichever combination you do, you're usually onto a pretty good thing where you've got something that you can sell, And win a pitch with because it's understandable but you're also opening up that kind of 40% fun space to have fun. It hopefully serves the mainstream but it's also progressive work at the same time.
1: That's the feeling I get when I see your work. I appreciate that you are deliberately targeting the mainstream with such a high level of craft because I feel like the ultimate goal is we should all strive to elevate the the quality of things as opposed to, you know, sort of race to the middle or the bottom. But the other thing is I make furniture, so I understand materiality and I see in some of your work, it, like the fender piece is is one that comes to mind an understanding of materiality that comes from real knowledge of it. It's you're not posing at understanding the mechanics, the, the, the sensuality of a wood grain. Like, that's not faked. So it, it, for me, it feels like it's coming from someplace that's super authentic and has a real understanding of what makes the materiality um, a, a visceral access point, and working with that in a way that you put your own twist on which is super cool it's like it's very fun to watch and it makes me excited
0: yeah yeah it's, it's safe to say that at this point after all these years we've definitely got a good understanding of where the line is with kind of bending the rules or bending the materials and not bending them and uh, I can't take any credit for, for that level of of detail and craftsmanship because that's those those people who, who do that day to day and and continue to amaze and I think it's, it, to to try and put it it's really simply, we never want something to look like it's come from a computer. But we don't want to think about that. The ultimate compliment for me is for someone to just watch what we've done and be like, oh, that was really good. Not to say, oh, what did you make that in? What what software did you use? Is that short? Is it like that? You know, it, it's more just like, oh, that was really good. That's all I want to hear and I want to walk away. Or, or that, even that was nice. You know, I, I like the word nice. Oh, that was nice. Because that's what eye candy is and it... We happen to be in an industry where, whether we like it or not, we are purveyors of world-class eye candy. It's half the job. There's no point thinking it's anything beyond that sometimes because that's what we're being paid for.
1: <laughs> well, uh, thank you for all the eye candy I enjoyed while while researching you for this talk. Where do you think you know with all this experience in your in your rearview mirror including your your burnout and your recovery and taking your personal life into account with your professional life where do you see yourself pointed like what direction are you rolling forward
0: as far as the company goes i think we're in a really good place a really healthy company with two offices and we'll continue to do what we do i don't think there's any reason to change that we'll continue to strive to be the best motion design studio in the world whether we ever get that or whether we are there is a different question but we'll always strive to do that and for me it's it's interesting because i live here in la now you see other opportunities and you see other things your your peripheral vision is very different to what it was when i lived in london so it's all those kind of like side projects and the and the hobbies that you you pick up are very different here. So I don't know. On a personal level, it's going to be an interesting next five years or so to see what sort of interests and influences I start to to pick up because there's everyone's always like, oh, but you know, you, you direct stuff, don't you? Want to do long form? And I'm like, not really. I'm kind of afraid of anything longer than ninety seconds. <laughs> and, uh, and for some people, they really struggle to understand that because I think a lot of people direct commercials as a means towards you know becoming a long-form director eventually. That's that's the only reason they're doing it kind of thing. Uh, whereas I guess I'm kind of doing my career in reverse a little bit where I, I got lucky to start the company with Tim at such a young age that my goals were achieved or achievable re- really early. So now it's more kind of trying to do the things and apply what I've learned to things that I think will benefit from it. And there's still a kind of a few bucket list brands. One of them that we'd never done big projects with where you have shaped not just that brand, but the culture because they are the biggest TV network in that nation, for example. There's one of those that we're doing now. It was on the bucket list for sure. So there's there's still a few jobs like that where you... They're kind of culture-defining jobs that it would be really nice to make sure we bag a few of those in the coming years to continue to feel like we're making stuff that is getting in front of as many eyes as possible. To me, that that's how you help shape a more kind of tasteful society and by having as much good-looking stuff out there as possible.
1: Well, thanks for distilling it down to the most concise pitch. You got the job.
0: <laughs> we'll take it. All right.
1: <laughs> oh, Thank you so much for sharing your story. And thank you for sharing your challenges as well. I think that's really helpful for people to hear for the same reason that it was helpful to you when people sort of reached out and let you know that they'd been through something similar i think when we talk about it a little more openly other people feel a little more empowered to do something about it so thank you for that
0: hope so my pleasure
1: well i enjoyed talking to you i'm going to keep my eyes peeled on your on the work that's coming out because it sounds like it's culture defining and i want to be there
0: <laughs> it's a it's a slow burner so it's uh, it, it might be a short while yet but there's a, there's some nice ones in the pipeline for sure
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mike. This has been amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Hey, thanks for listening. To see images of Mike's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would, please do us a favor and rate and review. It really helps other people who would like these stories find us. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Alana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011.